0: bereavement room is a podcast for our community faith and culture featuring representative voices from across the uk and i am your host kulsima ali hi i'm hatim aldawi and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hello i'm priya ahmed and you're listening to bereavement room
1: podcast hello i'm Bushra malik and you're listening to the bereavement room podcast hi i'm tanya hardcastle and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hey, what's going on? It is Sly King and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast.
0: Hello, I'm Lydia Kirkland and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Abigail Chewett and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast.
0: Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is about child bereavement and the upheaval that might come with it. It is quite common that children that are bereaved of a parent will move around a lot, whether they move to another school or to the other side of the country. For some families, they have to blend into another family um and for some bereaved children they move to another country entirely there's a lot that comes with child bereavement a lot of changes and so i'm keen to unpack that upheaval and what that looks like and how a child that was bereaved that is now an adult sustains themselves and looks back and reflects back on that experience, because it is a very traumatic experience, particularly when it's it's sudden and unexpected. And so I'm pleased to say that today's guest is Tanya Hardcastle. Tanya is a British Bengali and proud East Londoner. She is the host of a podcast called Brown Don't Frown, which spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. I was on her podcast last year, I really enjoyed it, so do go check it out. She also writes in her own blog, tanyasweeklydose.com. She covers topics like social mobility, cultural identity, and intersectional feminism. On weekdays, she works in media regulation, and on weekends, she likes to go for a run, bake, cook, and travel. She's joined me in the room to talk about her biological mother who died suddenly and unexpectedly. Tanya was 10 years old at the time. I hope today's episode brings light, love and reflection to anyone that may resonate with it. An insight to those that don't know too much about the impact of child bereavement. If this episode becomes triggering, please take a pause, take a break, come back to it later. Do look after yourself. As always, Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Kalsima Ali. Hi everyone, welcome back to Bereavement Room podcast. I'm thrilled to say I'm joined by today's guest. She's a fellow British Bangladeshi podcaster. It's Tanya Hardcastle from Brown Don't Frown. Hi Tanya. Hi Kalsima, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. I'm really pleased to have you here today on my podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. No, you're so welcome. Now I want to talk a little bit about how you and I connected. Um, I appeared on your podcast sometime last year. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about bereavement and barriers, etc. So, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed that. It was a real highlight in the height of lockdown um, to to be able to connect. So, um, how did we find each other? Was it social media? Because I can't remember how you found bereavement room. Yeah, this is a really
1: interesting question and I keep getting asked this with various like podcast guests and other people that I've come across uh, on social media. Um, I think from what I, rec- what I can recollect at the moment, I think it was on Twitter, um, I think I one of my followers retweeted something that you'd said, something along those lines and I went on your profile um, thought you had some really interesting insights. I think you had a pinned tweet about bereavement and about your father. And that's what really sort of um, attracted me to following you, finding out a bit more about you because of how open and honest you were with your bereavement story. Uh, and I guess I okay. resonated with
0: that. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, there's just so much going on with social media at the moment. I always forget how people find me because I've had yeah. so, so many conversations with lots of Bangladeshis from all creative walks of life so it's it's just really nice to be able to connect with someone else in the Bangladeshi community so we're going to be talking about child bereavement and family estrangement but before we go there I want to learn a little bit more about you so talk to me about Brown Don't Frown and also your Bengali identity.
1: Yeah, of course. So yeah, Brown Don't Frown just sort of came about the idea of it um, a couple of years ago, actually. Uh, And it was something that I wanted to start for quite some time based on my upbringing and the women I had. In my life growing up, so uh, my maternal grandmother, my aunties, my uh, biological mum, and then latterly my adopted mum, who's also my biological auntie, my maternal auntie. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: the role they, the way they shaped me uh, as a woman, as a Bangladeshi, um, as a British Bangladeshi, uh, I guess. And it was something... In terms of what they experienced as a first generation uh, migrant, uh, my grandma's story as well, you know, being married at a really young age, those sorts of stories uh, really inspired me. But the older I got, the more I realized that those sorts of stories weren't really narrated, the narratives of those stories weren't really portrayed in a particularly appealing or positive light. And I'm not saying that they were necessarily positive but I think the way they were skewed um, was quite unfair to feminism and the definition of what feminism is, being a woman, celebrating womanhood and I felt that the mainstream feminist dialogue was very exclusionary towards those Mm. stories and so I thought I'd I'd start a platform where we could share more diverse perspectives from various women uh, and just bring new perspectives I guess to the the feminist discourse and that's why I started it. But I'm, I'm quite wary about using the term feminism because i know that a lot of people associate it with you know white middle-class women i'm trying to change that narrative uh, through the podcast so yeah and a bit more about myself other than that yeah i am um, um, i was born in east london lived there um, till I was about 10. Then I moved to South London and then moved around quite a lot growing up as a teenager. And then now as an adult, I have actually moved back to East London. So back to my roots. So yeah, I, I love love living here, love the diversity. Um, and it's something that I celebrate, um, a part, you know, being part of that community. I really, really enjoy it.
0: So you spent the first 10 years of your life in East London and you mentioned to me that you're a proud East Londoner. Talk to me a little bit more about that. What does that mean for you?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, I've reflected on this quite a lot. And I think for me personally, it's about uh, authenticity, bringing yourself, being yourself. And I think East London certainly makes me feel like I can be myself. You know, I've I've lived around the UK. I've even lived abroad for a few years. And there's no place um, I, I honestly can call home than East London. Um, I've even lived in South London. And I think the vibes are completely different to what I've experienced in East London. I think Because I spent so much of my childhood surrounded by, you know, Bangladeshi communities, by the Sylheti community, uh, and the fact that I could be myself around them um, has certainly shaped my sentiments around the East London community. And I honestly think you can certainly be yourself uh, as a British Bangladeshi here. I also think that it's one of the. I think for me, I think from what I've observed, it's one of the last places to have been overtaken by gentrification if you go to parts of south london for example it's very heavily gentrified and i think east london now is becoming more gentrified but Mm. i think it's 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 happening a lot slowly, and there's a lot of resistance from Bangladeshi communities. For example, Brick Lane. There's a big campaign around um, stopping. A, I think a big shopping center being built there at the moment. So mm-hmm. all of that, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it makes me very proud to be an East Londoner and the heritage and the history that goes with the Bangladeshi community you have been around for decades. In I think centuries, even I would go as far as to say, with some of the sailors who came.
0: Oh yes, century. yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that was in the 30s and 40s, the sailors that Mm -hmm. came over first. Uh, Don't quote me, might need to check that fact. Um, You're right about Brick Lane. When I go there now, I don't recognise it, actually, and I can see how much it's changed since I was a child. Yeah. Uh, When I used to go there as a child, there were loads of sari shops, right? Yeah, yeah. They're not there anymore, and it just looks like a completely different place. Um, and I still go there just for, you know, day trips to get food. It's really, really good for food. And just to buy my Bengali stuff, like my dad loved Bengali newspapers. So mm. I, I would go pick up the Bengali newspapers um, from Brick Lane and Bengali suites because I live in Greater London and we don't really have any Bengali shops here. So mm. it is a, it's a day trip to Town to, you know, get my Bengali things and yeah, you know, just be in touch with culture and stuff. So it's really interesting to hear about your upbringing there, and how how would you say what's the contrast between growing up in East London versus you said you were in Northeast England at some point? Yeah,
1: yeah, I lived in North Yorkshire in Teesside for okay. I think from about the age of fourteen till about uni, so eighteen, so about yeah, four or five years. Um, yeah, it was very different. Uh, it was a very isolating period of my life. Because as a teenager, you're already very self conscious and self aware, I think wherever you are in the world, but compounded that with um, the fact that it was a, a very white town. Um, and so there was no one that was no one in my class who looked like me, there's no one in, in the entire school who looked like me. So my brother and I were the only two Bengali kids, I think there were maybe one or two black kids there. But other than that everyone was white so that was a very um, harrowing experience for us to go from London um, which is heavily you know so culturally diverse to that was a huge cultural shock and it didn't sink in for a long time actually but I think I started you know being quite withdrawn at school didn't really like it didn't really feel particularly engaged uh, mm. and it made me appreciate when I moved back to London as an adult um, it really makes me appreciate living here and being here um, I think there are amazing perks though to living you know that country sort of very small town life there's a lot of lovely scenery the, the air's cleaner the water tastes a lot better but um, it's not somewhere I would live at, at this time in my life maybe in the future if I'm when I'm a lot older but my parents still live there and, and they really like that quiet quiet atmosphere which is a big contrast to their younger years living in London I think
0: and mm. um, that's quite common that people later in life go to more rural or suburban yeah. areas I mean did you feel like a minority then yeah when you went there you felt quite like the only I mean- one yeah, I think I'd go even
1: further than that. And I'd say I honestly felt like an alien, like who <laughs> had like a full blown identity crisis. Like, who am I? And yeah, I never like I didn't even the, the the fact that I was Bengali didn't even like resonate with me. Like I never really thought about it in a lot of detail. Um, I suppose I did when I was living in London as a growing up as a kid, but I never really like thought about it. In detail, like who am I? I'm Bangladeshi. What does that mean? It was just, you know, a very normal thing to be surrounded by the Bangladeshi community, and then it became very clear to me that it was something that part of me was lost when I moved up north, Um, and I've sort of reclaimed it now, moving, having moved back here.
0: Mm. That's really nice that you're able to reclaim that and get that sense of belonging. I think it's really important. Um, So I have a slightly different story to you. I was kind of born and bred in a very white working class. Part of London. Oh right, whereabouts? Um, So Greater London, Hillingdon. I just for anonymity reasons, I don't want to say where. But I very much am on the edge of West London, so Mm. it's very very white there, and I went to a very white primary school. So for me, it's a uh, I'm sort of slightly different to you. I grew up within Mm. the white community, yeah, um, and it was only until I went to secondary school in Northwest London that that changed. Um, there were just so many more people from all over, like a very diverse school, but the majority was still very white. It's just... We did still have more ethnic minorities when we got to secondary school. Mm. Um, but if you had to do the data and the numbers, it was still quite white and it was very divided as well. Like you'd have like the Mediterranean gang and then you'd have like the South Asian gang Sounds, and, yeah. and everyone just divides off by race. So mm. I mean, it's really interesting the way that you speak about, you know, dissecting and looking at your identity you didn't have to think about it too much in the first 10 years of your life um whereas when you moved around you had to think about it a little bit more and Mm -hmm. I guess it is a bit like an identity crisis Mm. Um, would you describe it as an identity crisis I think as a teenager
1: yeah from about the age of like 16 to 18, like, full-blown. I was very rebellious, like, I was with my parents because they were quite strict anyway, but they weren't, like, crazy strict. Um, But I was just rebelling against all of that because... I just thought why not I mean I hate the school I go to I hate everyone around me but might as well just like go out um sneak out the house things like that I did a lot of rebellious things and now when I reflect on it and I talk about it with my parents they just laugh at it but I think I I honestly put them through a lot (laughs) a lot of difficulties Mm -hmm. because I remember them arguing about me um late you know late into the night and I do feel guilty about that period because when I ask them about it they say you know we didn't know what to do because you know they didn't have any biological kids of their own so for them it was like their first go at parenting but as like older adults with older children so it must have been very I think challenging for them to have to tackle with that
0: Mm, yeah I think parenting's really really hard (laughs) but I only realize that now as I get older (laughs) yeah yeah and I I love this conversation about the inner city experience versus the more suburban or rural experience because whenever whenever I meet South Asian kids from inner cities there's you know the experience is so different to mine and I find it really really fascinating but also I think there's a presumption about brown or black kids that grow up in more suburban and rural areas but that's a another conversation for another podcast Mm,
1: that's interesting yeah Mm. I'll be interested to find out more about yeah what you think about that
0: yeah Um, we'll 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 definitely talk about that perhaps another time um so going back to the first 10 years of your life I mean your mum died when you were 10 years old Um, tell me a little bit more about your mum, like how did she live her life what was she like she was a,
1: I'd say she was a very principled person Uh, and I think she got that from my granddad because I remember him being very similar um she was quite righteous so she you know liked to do everything by the book, she was very proper, she loved um, living in England, she really she always spoke about it, um, how much she loved this country, um, she never want to move away because my auntie who's now my adopted mother, she moved to Florida for a while um, when we were really young and she was telling my mum to move, join her, th- join her, join her over there. And my mum was just like, no, I love I love being here. I love London. I feel at like home here. Like, I don't really want to move. Um, and she'd never even been to America, so she didn't actually know. But she just knew deep down that she loved being being in, in London. Um, she had a lot of amazing friends um, within the Bengali community. And a lot of the time, a lot of evenings after school, if my dad was working late, we'd just go out after dinner and see some of her friends, have a cup of tea, have a little natter. Um, and talk about life so it was nice being part of that sort of social engagement that she she very much liked to to do um and yeah I just remember her having a lot of friends which was very positive uh and she wasn't very strict either actually but I say that because well, actually, I think she was quite strict compared to my grandma because whenever she came round and she had to look after us for a day, if her mum had to run some errands, she would. She was a lot more lenient. So that's when I sort of realised maybe my mum is a bit strict. But then again, my grandma was probably just way too relaxed about everything. So that's a contrast between her and my grandma and my mum. So I think she got a lot of her characteristics um, from my grandfather. Um, I think she could also be... Um, quite hard-headed at times so quite stubborn so if she had a particular view about something like that was the right view um so that was that was just my observations as a 10 year old because I obviously didn't get to sort of understand her better and I think I would have done if I was you know if she died a bit later if she you know lived for a bit she was around for a bit longer uh, in the time of my life um so I, I don't actually know if I it would have been really interesting to have had proper adult conversations with her and and get to see what she was like as an adult because I think as a kid your perception of your parents is, is very different to um to your your perceptions of them as an adult because when you're kid, you don't really understand things like flaws, the fact that everyone's human, that they make mistakes. Um, and it would have been interesting to see that side of her, I think. Um, but she was a very um, yeah, she had a really big influence on my life, even to this day. Um, and one thing that my mom always spoke about with my grandma and with other people that she'd always doted on was the fact that when I was a kid, apparently I said to her, mom, you're so, you're such an amazing person. Like I honestly think that when you die, you're going to end up being a prophet. Like you're going to (laughs) be really well renowned. And she'd always like talk about that with my grandma. Like, guess what Tanya said about me, like, don't you think that's so nice? Like she was so happy about that comment. Um, and I think it made her feel like, you know, she was a good mum and she was doing everything, you know, how she, how she should be as as a mother. So yeah, mm. that was a really interesting memory
0: that I that I have of her. You sounds like you've got quite a few memories. Mm, yeah, I've got loads. <laughs> and so it's not a blurry time, you remember those 10 years quite well. Um, I do remember it quite well, but I think that because I don't talk about
1: it very often, a lot of it it does seem blurred but then when I sort of think back to that time and then all these memories sort of come to the surface if that makes sense Mm.
0: yeah yeah it does I think it's a very heavy thing to carry and if you're not talking about it all the time it's just with you and then when you are talking about it with other people you know you you are actively thinking and you're actively reflecting
1: yeah exactly
0: so Talk to me a little bit more about that time. It must have been really difficult. You mentioned that your mum died very suddenly. Like, do you mm. remember that day in particular?
1: Yes, I remember it very well. Um, so she'd take us to school every day routinely, um for as long as I can remember. So she'd take myself and my brother to school. We went to the same school together only a couple of years apart. So he was a couple of years below me. And it was just a routine day, really. But I remember everything about it, which is really strange. Um, I remember waking up, um, getting ready for school. My mum often spoke to my grandma on the phone, um, usually in the evenings after six. They'd have a chat after we'd had dinner. Um, they speak for like hours on the phone, just about random stuff. Um, because my grandma lived in South London, so she was quite far away. We took about an hour, I think, to, to get to, to hours. So she really enjoyed that time with her. Whatever she wanted to rant about, her life, everything going wrong, whatever it was um Mm. so yeah it was nice seeing that bond um so that's what happened on that morning um she spoke to my grandma on the phone which is quite unusual I think my grandma rang her um and she'd had a dream um she said it was a very vivid dream and I don't actually remember whether my grandma told her what happened in that dream but my grandma then later told me what had happened and it was a very symbolic dream for her um and it was I think it was like a really um really tiny bird's two birds and their mother just walking and then out of nowhere a massive eagle came and snatched the two babies away
0: oh gosh
1: yeah so for her it was like a premonition for my grandma because she was a big believer in dreams and what they meant so she kept on going on about it after my mom died about how she'd like foreseen this happening. So I'm not actually sure whether she got to tell my mum that because I remember trying to rush my mum to go to school because we were running really late. And I was like, "Mom, can we, can we leave now, please? Can you talk to her later? I remember saying that to her um, in Bengali. Um, so we set off for school. It was like a 10-minute walk, very, very close to where we lived. Um, and normally I always say bye to my mum. My I used to always say bye to her before so I'd turn around and say bye before I went into the classroom and on that day I didn't do that so it was yeah it was really memorable for me that I didn't do that um and I think that's because I I was running late um but I remember thinking like why haven't I turned around as I didn't turn around so I was going into the sort of classroom and thinking should I should I turn around and say bye to her but I didn't
0: so it was your intuition kicking in there but you yeah Yeah. okay
1: Yeah, and I thought, why didn't I do that? Um, So it's really interesting that I had that feeling in my head. um, Mm -hmm. Before anything can happen, obviously, I didn't know she was going to die. But I just thought, like, in my head, why haven't I done this? Um, And then, yeah, I just got on with my day. uh, And then I remember around 10 o'clock, which is when she actually died, I think, maybe a bit later than that. But I remember around 10 o'clock, I felt, like, really weird in my stomach like I felt like butterflies it's really weird I don't really speak about this very often but I just felt like really strange like Mm. just not myself um so I remember going to the toilet and I remember like my my knees shaking as I was like sat on the toilet it was so weird and I was like shaking and I was like what's wrong with me like why am I being like this like what like this weird sense of like anxiety but for no reason I didn't have a reason for it at all it was like any other day Um, And then I heard an ambulance actually while I was on the toilet, Um, like an an ambulance quite loud, Um, and she actually died very close to uh, just outside the school where we used to go. Okay. Um, So that was the ambulance actually, and didn't have any clue about what was going on, Um, but I remember at like a, I think we had like a 15 minute break in between lunch and like first couple lessons in the morning and I saw my brother in the playground, um, but he went, he was, you know, he went went to a different playground to me because he was a bit younger than me. So we'd never really got to hang out during break times. But he came over and said, oh, um, this guy has just um, told me that mum, like, passed out. She fainted, like, just outside our school. But apparently she's okay now. And then I, that made me feel really weird. I was like, right, trying to link why I felt weird earlier. Mm that was a really weird situation um and then yeah in the afternoon maybe around two o'clock um so for the rest of that day I started feeling really weird
0: I felt like something wasn't right so hang on a second sorry Uh, so your brother told you that he heard from someone that your mum had fainted on after dropping you both off to school yeah and then the ambulance came and picked her up so did any of the teachers take you out of school like I'm just trying to connect the dots here What? Yeah.
1: So around two o'clock, I think we were at a school assembly and my head teacher came and to grab myself, and my brother, and she took us away. She said, we need to talk. Um, And then she just said, oh, your mum's not very well. She's in a hospital. Um, Someone's going to come and pick you up. Uh, And then one of my mum's friends, uh, older sons, came to pick us up in his car. And he was, like, really smiley, like, overly smiley, like, really happy. And I was just like, why is he being so weird? And he was like, right, I'm taking you to my to my house, to my mum's house, and then you're going to see your family. Your mum's going to be okay. She was just a bit unwell. And I, it just didn't make any sense to me. And I knew something had happened. That's when I started crying in the car. Like, we really started crying. I was like, yeah, she's, she's definitely not – she's not – she's not alive. But Abed, my brother Abed was just like, what's wrong with you? Like, calm down. It's fine. Like, mum's going to be okay. But everything started adding up in my head, like, okay, the morning, it was weird. My brother said something to me. Why did, why has he come to pick us up? My mom's never not picked us up from school. She's always picked us up. Like something's definitely happened. Um, so in terms of what actually happened to us, so um, a few weeks before that day, sh- my brother and I, we went to like our local sweet shop, which was literally right next door to the, um, to the school we went to. Mm. And um the shopkeeper knew my mum very well. We always went there to get our sweets, like pretty much every other day after school, like just our snacks and stuff. Um and yeah, so she, you know, they always had a chat, like he was, you know, a very friendly, very nice person. Um, and then one day, a few weeks before she died, my brother had wanted this like Jackie Chan magazine, and it like it came with like issues, various issues. Um, and my mum didn't want to go in the shop she was like right I'm really tired like whatever it is just show me what it is and I'll I'll come back another day and get it for you so he went into the shop got got the magazine came out and tried to show it to my mum and the shopkeeper came out and was like how dare you try and steal this magazine from my shop and mum was like calm down like you know me for years I would never do that I've just asked my son to come and um, show me the magazine because I didn't want to go in the shop I just I was really tired and wanted to go home so she felt really insulted because a lot of her other friends happened to be in that vicinity at the time. So she was, she felt like he'd really offended her and embarrassed her and basically, you know, implied that she was like a thief, which she found incredibly insulting because she'd known him for such a long time. We'd been going to a shop for years. Um, so she, that night, was very upset. She was like, I'm going to confront him. Like, I'm not happy. Why would he, you know, treat you like this? Treat us like this is so unfair. So on the day of she died, she went to go and confront him. Um, she was five months pregnant as well. So she was, you know, and she was, I think she might've just about been 40. Um, so she was quite an old person to be pregnant. That's a
0: late in age. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's quite late. Um, So, yeah, she had an altercation with him. I don't know the details of it, but some um, witnesses who were there. So, for example, there was a guy who had a flower, like a fruit stall just outside that shop. And he'd seen what had happened. um, And he was able to sort of relay to my family afterwards what happened. So she, yeah, she engaged in like some sort of altercation with him. She basically confronted him and said, you know, why do you do that to me the other day? It was really, you know, really insulting. I'd really like it if you could apologize. Um, and And the shopkeeper wasn't very cooperative. It was like, no, I'm not doing that. Like basically F off sort of thing. So she found that really rude. Um and then there was a phone box just outside the shop and she called the police. Um and there's a, we we got the transcript, the recording for that afterwards as well. So um we heard everything basically what happened and she just said, you know, she was very exasperated in that own conversation, that recording, she just said, you know, I feel really upset. Like, I don't know why this has happened to me. I really like him to apologise to me. So the police were like, right, so you you want us to come and um, try and mediate what has happened, which was basically a private dispute. So I, I don't think the police were like no. really understanding what was going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. um So then, and then she revealed in that conversation, oh, by the way, I'm five months pregnant. And the police officer was like, okay, do you need an ambulance? because she was like really out of breath and she was like no no i'm fine i'm fine and he was like are you sure are you sure you don't need an ambulance and she was like yeah i'm I'm fine i'm fine um and then yeah and then i think as as she came out of that phone booth there was like um like a pole you know poles that stop cars from coming onto the pavement yeah so she i think she fell in between that pole and the phone booth um and I think there was a lady who lived above the shop who might have seen her and sort of called out and said, This woman's passed out. Uh, and the uh the guy I told I mentioned, the the stall holder who had like a fruit stall outside, um, he saw that she'd fainted. So he took his jacket off and put it just under her head, tried to like revive her. Um, and yeah, she wasn't responsive or anything. So they called the ambulance. I think I'm not sure who did that, but um, the ambulance took I think over an hour to arrive. They took a very long time. Um, so yeah, and I think in that time she basically died. Um, they took her to the hospital. They tried to resuscitate her a lot, many many times, and they couldn't um, do that. So yeah, she she died. I think she died at the scene, but they pronounced her dead. I think um, at the hospital.
0: Wow. That is a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. Yeah. It's
1: really crazy at the time when we found out all of this, especially listening to the the tape recording of her conversation with the police officer because I just thought, oh, my God, in that time while she was having that conversation, I was at school in in my lesson, literally only a few yards away,
0: and I didn't know. And you heard this recording?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was um, played... um, to us uh immediate family members afterwards because they had you know we wanted to see all the evidence of what exactly had happened um and i think the guy was actually investigated because he was associated with someone dying so i think they just wanted to see like what had happened mm. if there was a physical altercation for example like people were just trying to figure out what had happened but i don't think he'd actually done anything to her he was cleared but i remember it being in the local newspaper mm. um i think he was arrested actually but nothing they obviously didn't have anything on him i don't think he inflicted anything on her physically um i think she just got very agitated and angry and she was pregnant um
0: yeah it's quite stressful
1: yeah so we got the coroner's report because it was such an unusual death they did a full-blown um investigation like she went to her body was in the morgue for like over a month so her funeral was very delayed um and obviously islamically people were very upset about that because they were like oh we want to get her buried as quickly as possible Mm. um but yeah there was a, a like a post-mortem examination um we went to go and see her body as well at the morgue which was a very very disturbing um scene I remember
0: like I I really don't know oh oh you went there you actually got to see her there okay
1: so there was like a glass screen curtains were drawn and they were pulled um and then yeah she would just lay there they'd like obviously like dressed her up and made her look like she was just asleep so that was like really um It was just, I just remember, I think, talking to other family members and saying, like, it looks like she's just asleep. It doesn't look like she's dead.
0: Mm. I just want to go back a little bit. The moment they said to you that your mum had died, where was that? Were you at home at that point? Where were you? In hospital? Family friend's house? Um, Yeah. The guy who took the the
1: family friend's son who took uh, us back to his mum's house who my mom was very good friends with um gave me a little bit of comfort and then a few minutes later we were we had some juice she was trying to like calm us down I don't think she knew what had happened my mom's friend she just thought like she was in hospital she was gonna be okay and then a f- half an hour later maybe like in the afternoon three or four um, my dad came over and he was he was visibly like He's, he was really really upset you would see that he'd been crying for for a long time and he didn't say anything he just like sat down and like was silent and then eventually I was like right what's happened to mum like is she gonna be okay and then he was just like no she's gone and started crying mm-hmm. so that was a very I think everyone was really surprised um because her my mum's friends were there or the friend who whose house it was she was just like what that doesn't make sense I thought she was I thought she was okay I thought she was just like being checked out at the hospital Mm,
0: it's inconceivable news um very inconceivable that something like that would suddenly happen when you know she was fine she just dropped you off to school and then next minute you're there and the next you're not so you say your biological dad was really upset in that moment Mm. what was your reaction um yeah I was very upset started crying I was hugging my dad
1: and yeah I just cried for I think I just remember crying for a very long time maybe like half an hour or so
0: Mm -hmm. what did support look like for you in the in that day or in the days after I know you said it took about a month before the funeral what was that like Mm. so all my cousins well not all of my cousins
1: two of my very close cousins um and their parents and my auntie and her husband they came my grandparents came um and they basically stayed in that house for yeah several weeks maybe a month um and it was a very small house it was just a two-bed maisonette so they had to all sort of like I don't I don't actually know what the sleep I don't remember what the sleeping arrangements were like but clearly they must not have been very good so but yeah we all just like tried to stick together um got a lot of support from them but basically he went into that house on that day all you could hear was crying so i think you could probably you could probably hear it from a mile mile away like there was Mm. a lot of grief a lot of people crying in the house a lot of friends showing up that evening my mom's family friends my school friends my teacher showed up the next day um which was you know very personal for teachers you know i'd never seen them like they'd probably never been in a in a pupil's house before so it was a very personal experience um And yeah, a lot of people bring food over the Bangladeshi community, you know, in solidarity, bringing a lot of food. My mum was very active in sort of community engagement work. So she was doing a lot of voluntary stuff, Um, things like filling out forms for um, people who didn't speak very good English, things like that. So in the local community centre, so a lot of them knew her and they are you know, very, very upset and distraught. And they tried to be as supportive as they could by bringing, you know, food, a lot of food. So that was that was relief.
0: Yeah, that's a really nice thing when our community comes together at a distressing time. I just, I love that part of it. The support Mm -hmm. is just unmatched and people are there for days and the food deliveries as well because there's so many people in in the home and you're not going to be cooking are you well obviously you're not you're 10 years old (laughs) but like the adults you know your grandparents aren't going to be doing that so you you need all of that support and I think that's just such a lovely thing about our Bengali community we Mm. really do unite in those moments it's amazing it's just a beautiful thing um you talked about your cousins with me offline you know talk to me a little bit more about that support you got from your cousins Mm.
1: honestly they were incredible like I even reflect on it today um uh, I'm not I'm not very close with them anymore um you know okay they're on on different trajectories different paths in life but um that that period of our childhood they were very very crucial um we were we were we were childhood friends you know I grew up seeing them from you know when we were babies we did all our you know family events together Eid celebrations pretty much every other weekend we'd see each other anyway uh, when we were kids so I was very very close to them um, and we'd always look forward to seeing them we weren't we didn't have a lot of money so you know that was the one thing we'd always look forward to as kids you know hanging out with our cousins going to the park that sort of thing Mm. um Uh, so yeah, they were really, really instrumental in helping us to, you know, find that sense of feeling human again from, you know, not being numb that they were there, um, for us from the day when my mom died, you know, they stayed with us for months. They miss a lot of school as well. And yeah, I mean, they were obviously very upset as well, but they were kids, so I, I'm similar to me, you know, I mean, my mum had died, there's, there's, you know, they didn't have that same experience. But I think through seeing what my brother and I were going through, they were just trying to be there for us. So they were a really good distraction um and in a way they helped me not forget but try and just come to terms with what was happening because I knew deep down and I'm sure my brother felt the same that you know they were always going to be there for us no matter what so that was really really reassuring I think because obviously you have adults around you as well but it's not the same when you're a kid you want to have that same sense of solidarity with people your age so you of feel course. like they, they can relate to you, you can relate to them a lot better of course so, yeah. so glad they were there for us definitely
0: yeah, because the conversation between an adult and a child is very different in comparison to your, you know, children and children, your peers. Yeah. Um, that's a really difficult thing to go through at such a young age. And also to just digest what the permanence of death means. Mm. Very difficult. And you didn't have any counselling in school? Did you have any play therapy? What? Uh,
1: No, didn't have anything like that. Um, Just didn't go to school. Actually, didn't go back to school. Um, Went to, ended up moving to South London where the rest of my mum's family were and living there uh, and then having to enroll in a different school. So I, you know, was cut off from all my childhood friends. Um, And it happened quite suddenly as well. So that was difficult to come to terms with. But also it was quite, maybe it was quite therapeutic in a way because it sort of dropped me in a completely different um, environment. And it helped me sort of adjust very quickly to what was happening around me and maybe being, you know, put my putting myself in a different environment helped to try and cushion some of that difficulty. And I think a lot of the memories would have been very raw if I'd stayed there for a prolonged period because everything would have reminded me of her, of my mum. Um, but of course I was still remembering her because I was surrounded by all her extended family, but it was a bit different because I felt very sort of supported. F- felt like you know, a warm, fuzzy blanket was being wrapped around me when I had all my um extended family members there to support me. Um, and having my grandma there was really, really important because you know everyone was saying, you know, she's your mum's mum, like she's one of the closest things that you have. Mm, um very so important. It was really nice having her. Yeah. So, but she was obviously grieving very, very badly. Like she was really upset. Um, she ended up having, I think, like glaucoma or cataracts or something because she was crying so much. So she developed like a an eye um eye condition. So she had to have an operation actually a few years later because of all the
0: crying. Yeah. So. I mean, nobody wants to see their child go before them. It's mm-hmm. not the natural order of life. No. Um, talk to me a little bit about the funeral if you can. Did you go to the funeral? Um so we went to the um like the
1: mosque ceremony janaza okay NASA, yes, we went there. Um, but then I think we were going to go to the funeral, but I think on the day a few of the adults, like my aunts and uncles, were discussing it. They're like, is it going to be okay for them to go? You know, they're very young. How are they going to feel about this? You know, having you know, having to watch their mum getting buried, like, is that going to be comfortable for them? It might traumatize them for years to come, that sort of thing. Those were the conversations they were having. And then on that day, I think so I think someone asked me, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to like go home? Do you want to stay? And then my uncle my mum's sister's husband volunteered to take us home and my grandma as well because i don't think she wanted to i don't think she was in in the right place to actually see the burial happen i think my granddad stayed and everyone else stayed and then my yeah my uncle myself my brother and my grandma um we just we left um after the janaza. Came home to my um, grandma's house uh, and just tried to relax there. But I remember on the car journey, my uncle was trying to be, like trying to be nice, trying to distract us, trying to talk about like some light-hearted things. Um, I think it was it must have been difficult for him to try and, pro- you know, process what was happening as well. Um, th- but he volunteered to basically look after us for the rest of the day while the funeral was happening.
0: Mm-hmm. And where was your dad at the time? Your biological <clears throat> dad.
1: So, yeah, I think he went to the funeral and the genaza, Um, but I, I don't really know what happened I, because I wasn't there. But, um, mm. yeah, I think the, the relationship was strained between um, my mum's side of the family and him <clears throat> by this point
0: anyway. Okay. Well, we'll come back to family estrangement in a mm. moment. Um, so you, you weren't there. You, you know, it was a difficult decision for your family to decide whether you and your brother should... Go to the burial and to the Janaza. Mm. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Yeah. But so went to the Janaza, but not the burial. Oh, the, not the burial. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Went that, to the mosque. yeah. yeah but, so that's quite common then, anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I. I don't go to any of the burials in my family. But no. we, we've had that conversation um, about why that is sometimes. I think for children, it's really scary as well. So parents are quite concerned about whether mm. it's going to be a really scary thing to witness. Yeah. And that, you know, whether it's going to scar them for life or how what the reaction is going to be like, what the impact is going to be. So mm. I actually work in child bereavement. And that's one of the biggest dilemmas for British families. Mm families mm. should I take a child between the ages of three and a half and 10 and 11 to a funeral mm. and I spend a lot of time having open conversations about mapping up what the present looks like and what the future is going to look like and mm. you know the conversations to have with children mm. and whether it's a good idea to take a child to the funeral and It's it's quite a complicated conversation to have Mm. um, because there'll be family members sometimes that are, well, no, definitely not. It's too scary for them. They're too young to understand that. Um, But it's actually quite healthy to take children to the funeral, From beginning to end because these things surface later in life or at least Mm. give them the option because children make decisions all the time like who their friends are what jumper they want to wear what book they want to read so it's just like giving them the choice and asking them do you want to go to the funeral this is what is going to happen but interestingly for British families it's one of the biggest dilemmas whether to take them or not and they don't know how to approach the conversation they don't know how to talk to their kids about what a funeral looks like what it means um and how to take part in that day so I think it's really really interesting when children half attend or don't attend at all Mm -hmm. and it's usually because of the anxieties the adults have about it and how it's how it's going to impact that child which is completely fair it's a you know we're not trained to make those decisions these are things that they don't teach us exactly so it is it is a really really hard thing um so family estrangement is quite common in the Bangladeshi community right Mm.
1: yes is it I don't know I I suppose it is is.
0: It it is, but the thing is, we don't talk about it openly because of Mm -hmm. risk of reputation, what will the community think. Um, If you can, talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Mm. Family estrangement yeah I mean it's something that I I didn't really reflect on as a child I just thought this was not things
0: um I do
1: remember having conversations with my mum before she died when we were quite young about what would happen if if she ever did die I don't know why she thought that she needed to have that conversation with us but clearly she felt like it could happen you never know I don't know if other mothers have have similar conversations I mean I probably would have had kids and you know give them you know some indication of what would happen if I died but she discussed it with us when we were quite young and she Said, you know, what do you think would happen if I died? Like, would you want to live with your dad? Would you want to live with um, your extended family? Like, how would you feel about that? Because, you know, she had quite a difficult relationship with my dad. They weren't, you know, they weren't on good terms. Um, so I think that's probably why she felt the need to ask that question to us, even though we were quite young. And she said, um, what would happen? Like, I, I'm She'd actually be quite vocal about the fact that she was concerned about what would happen to our future if she died. Because she, you know, according to her, from her own understanding and her relationship with my dad, she felt that he wasn't the best person placed person to take care of us if she were to die that he wouldn't have the best intentions for us and that was her sort of view um
0: so you know so so hang on she had that conversation with you already as a child yeah wow you guys were very mature children I know I can't believe she discussed
1: it (laughs) with us um but yeah I think I was quite vocal about the fact that you know I was I was always on my mum's side I think my brother was too we were very close to our mum um weren't very close to our dad um he he worked quite late anyway and I think he was just a typical man you know not very emotional not very expressive so it was quite difficult to build that rapport with him in the same way we did with our mum who was very sort of emotionally very open she cried in front of us she wasn't you know afraid about you know emotions and grief and things like that should be very open. Mm. So she you know she, we had the she, I think it was you know it was something that was in our heads from before she died so maybe that's why it didn't feel unnatural for us to move in quite not very reluctantly with our extended you know maternal family because we thought well maybe this is something that mum would want for us.
0: Mm
1: um and maybe it was that subconsciously we'd already taken aside you know uh, from from day one so I don't know whether that had played a part um so yeah that that basically set in stone what our future was going to look like we're very comfortable with our you know extended family we're very close to them we saw them growing up so we didn't feel weird we didn't feel like we were in unfamiliar territory we felt you know at home really to be honest and I always had very happy memories going to see my relatives as a kid. So I wasn't scared about doing that at all.
0: I didn't even think twice. Mm. You said you wrote a letter to the judge. Do you remember what you wrote? Yes. No,
1: I don't. I don't really remember the details, but I, I, I can probably summarise what I, I likely wrote. Um, so yeah, we had um, court proceedings. So my my maternal auntie and uncle um, wanted to um, get you know sort of rights uh, over our sort of care and so and um, you know my biological dad wanted to fight that and he said you know I don't agree I'm their father so I should be taking care of them so yeah there was there were legal proceedings to address that and as part of that process um a judge uh, asked whether you know we want to express our sentiments because as kids we weren't really allowed to be in the courtroom and so that was the best way for a judge to understand what we wanted and that was a very important decision a factor in the decision making of where we were going to ultimately end up living um so yeah my brother and I wrote a letter I think I even drew some photos not photos sorry some some pictures and stick people uh in that letter <laughs> I remember doing that um and yeah just saying you know I want to be with my Um, My mum's side of the family. I'm very close to my grandparents. Uh, You know, I love my auntie and uncle. Um, And actually, I've just remembered what my mum said before she died. She said, who would look look after you if your dad couldn't look after you? Who would it be? And I suggested my auntie and uncle because they didn't have any kids. And I was like, oh, well, they don't have any kids. And... They've got, you know, quite a, a substantial house. So they'd probably be able to look after us. Whereas my other auntie has her own kids. My mum's brother, uh, my uncle, he had you know, three children who are really young. So if we, I, I was quite practical about this. And I said, if you want to be practical, it would probably be her, wouldn't it? And she was like, yeah, you're right. You know, it probably would be her. But then she's so busy. She's such a busy woman. Like, how would she find time? And I was like, I don't know, mum. Like, you're asking me all these hypothetical questions. Like, I don't know the answer. Mm. Um, so... So, yeah, I mean, I was very comfortable writing that letter and saying I'm happy to live with my auntie and uncle going forward. Um, But then the sort of agreement was on the basis that we'd still continue to see my dad on the weekends, that sort of thing. Okay.
0: The relationship didn't
1: have been cut off, no.
0: Okay, so did you see him on the weekends then?
1: Um, Yeah, we tried to at like a a contact centre. So I think they were like sort of middle houses where you'd meet. Um, I think a lot of people who are going through a divorce probably met with their kids there as well so that was the type of environment it was it felt very um, like I don't know it felt really um, strange and forced like it wasn't in a home environment mm, um, cold so, yeah it felt very cold um, and industrialized oh,
0: okay. institutionalized it's not sorry. great for a
1: kid so yeah I didn't really like the environment very much and there were already you know divisions happening I think among the adults um in terms of what was going to happen to us what was best for our future um I think people were scared in my mom's family that he was going to send my brother and I off to Bangladesh I think that was a really big concern and that's why they didn't want him uh, didn't want us to live with him I think that was one of the main Mm concerns because he you know he was a busy person would he have time to take care of us that sort of thing um and I think one of the key questions the judge asked him during the proceedings was are you going to be able to take care of your children you're a busy person like who's going to take care of them who's going to pick them up from school and his answer was oh they'll just be raised by the local community and the judge was obviously not very impressed with the answer like that is not how you raise kids mm. um so I think maybe that was a defining a turning point in terms of what was going to happen to us going
0: forward okay you've had a lot of upheaval and a lot going on and a lot of adult conversations for a 10 year old um which we'll come back to in a minute I I'm just curious to know do you do you grieve for what could have been I mean do you have a relationship with your biological father now that you're an adult
1: no, I don't have a relationship with him. Um, so we were legally adopted, my brother and I, um, by my a few years ago. Um, and they asked us whether it was something we wanted. They said, you know, if, if this happens, you're never going to be able to, um, for example, like legally, you're not, you won't be able to, if your father dies, you won't be able to, Inherit anything like it changes the dynamic. Like, how do you feel about this? And my my brother and I, you know, by this point, I think we were sixteen at this point, and we were living up north, so we were already very detached from the London lifestyle anyway. So we were very happy to do that, and we didn't have any sort of objections to it. Um, And I think as as a part of that process, he was notified because he was our biological father that we were going to be adopted. uh, And did he have any objections? And he never responded, never engaged um and yeah he just sort of fizzled out of our lives after the uh, court proceedings maybe he tried a handful of times to try and get in touch with us but he ultimately um didn't really make the effort I don't know if anything did happen behind the scenes that I don't know about I mean I was a child so mm. I'm not really sure okay.
0: how do you feel about that now as an adult reflecting um, back on all of this Yeah, it's interesting about what could have
1: happened if my mother was still alive today and we lived our life. Um, Would I have been a different person? Would I have had a better relationship with my biological father? Um, I don't really think I would have because I didn't have a particularly great relationship with him um, when we were kids uh, in our family home. Um, And I don't think my brother did either. So he was, you know, he was very... um, he was he had a very uh he didn't have a particularly great temper he wasn't very good with children generally he was quite detached um and because of that I didn't have a particularly great relationship with him if I did then maybe I would have felt differently and thought oh my god make the effort to see my dad but I never really like followed up with it when it turned out we weren't really seeing him anymore and we stopped seeing him I didn't ever say to my um auntie and uncle like what's happening I want to see him like I never remember ever saying that and maybe that's because I didn't have a very good relationship with him so I think about my mom and what could have been um if she was still alive and what sort of person I would be what sort of family dynamic we'd have whether they'd stay together or not because there are many times you know when she when she thought shall I leave him but again community what will uh, what the reputation of what's going to happen of a divorced woman that was probably what deterred her ultimately from leaving him um So, yeah, I don't really have any regrets in that sense. Um, People always say in in my extended family, I remember my grandmother when she was alive, she, I think she felt quite guilty about it actually, because she was, you know, she was quite religious. and her sort of sentiments were that, well, at the end of the day, he's still he's still our biological father. So, you know, maybe we should have made more of an effort to stay in touch with him. So I remember her having that conversation with me um, without my, my adopted parents being there. She just said it. She just took me aside when we were alone one day and said, you know, how do you feel? Do you want to contact your dad? This was me as an adult. I was in my 20s. And she was like, do you want to contact him? Like, how do you feel about him? And I just said, I'm, I'm not really bothered, to be honest. I don't really feel anything. So... um biologically he might be my dad but I mean he's never made the effort to um be in touch with us um when my grandma died a few years ago he was contacted by um extended member of my family and um I think he attended I'm not really sure what happened but I I didn't see him but after that he um, obtained my brother and and my um, phone number and he tried to contact us and um, basically tried to gaslight us and say that oh I've been trying to contact you you've ignored me and turned it around and said that it was our problem that we hadn't contacted him and that really really annoyed me and to be honest that's pushed me even further away so at the moment (laughs) I don't really have any sort of (laughs) strong sentiments or inclinations towards him right now
0: Mm. So, you don't think about your biological father in a warm way anymore, really? And it's not, not something you way. give, and you don't give much thought to it anymore.
1: I don't, I'm, I think I'm very numb to the situation. I, I, I'm i mm. not someone who says, you know, never say never. I'm not saying I'm never going to contact him, but I think at the, I'm, uh, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I'm quite happy with the way things are, and I feel like that's going to open a can of worms. Sure. And I'm also very conscious about my parents. I don't want to disrespect them in any way. I don't think that they would feel disrespected, um, but they are aware that he tried to contact um, myself and my brother. And, you know, they've said, it's it's obviously up to you what you want to do. But do you remember, like, what, you know, the sort of relationship that he had with you as kids and your mum and all that stuff. So... You know, something that, I mean, I have thought about it, but at the moment I'm, I'm not really sure about what, what to do or where to go with all of it, to be mm. honest with you.
0: Yeah. There's, you know, in life there's timing. Maybe now is not the right time. Mm. And maybe there never will be the right time. Um, you've had a lot of upheaval in your life, a lot of upheaval. How do you feel that that has shaped you now as a, a woman Mm,
1: yeah it's had a very profound impact on who I am as a person I think um I think I don't I'm not very open when it comes to my vulnerabilities to a lot of people there's only a select few people who I will let myself you know openly be um you know a, a talk about things like grief and my sort of inner um insecurities about life things like anxiety um fear of death fear of losing um all my family members um things like that don't we talk about very often um so it's shaped me in a way that's made me quite I think what's the word I'm looking for I think I'm quite stoic like I'm I'm quite hard-headed in a way um and I don't think I would necessarily be that way if I if I didn't you know have to bereave um the loss of my mum but also at the same time, as I'm getting older, I feel myself you know being very emotional about really little things that will just tick me and make you know make me start crying if I like if I have like a very brief argument with someone like that will just make me you know cry or be really upset over things. So I'm trying to be less emotional about certain things and and stop overthinking certain things. So I think it's made me very conscious about being an adult and I think that I, do- I don't really think, my childhood was as you would expect uh, a conventional childhood to be. So I do feel like a part of my childhood was um, stolen from me really from having to go through that bereavement. Um, and as a woman, um, I, I'm trying to be a lot more balanced with my emotions um, and reconcile with the fact that, you know, emotions are there and it's okay to be upset and to cry, which I do quite often, but not always about grief. And how
0: do you feel when you're crying? Um, like I should stop. (laughs) I I shouldn't cry too much. (laughs) Is is that because you feel ashamed, or you just feel it's not familiar to you? You're, it's not in the right. You know, it's not the right comfort zone for you. It's Mm. scary. Yeah, I don't think I'm ashamed because I do, I'm quite vocal
1: about feelings, but um, I think it's, it's the whole sort of persona of being that strong person and not letting your guard down because if you, you know, if you're super emotional about things, that can really tear you apart, you know, so, and having to go through the bereavement process as a kid, I think definitely solidified that for me. Mm, um mm. And I guess not being taken advantage of because in a way I saw what happened in the dynamic, even when I was a kid, the observations that I made between my parents, the dynamic of their relationship um, is something that I will never, like, I will never let myself be in that vulnerable position where, you know, a man is sort of controlling my way of life. Mm. So I'm very conscious about my relationships um, in that regard, because I, I will not let myself, you know, be in that vulnerable position or, you know, being dependent on another person. So, yeah, I'm a very independent person in that sense. I like, you know, the fact that I'm self-made, that I've done everything on my own. I've had obviously a lot of emotional um, support from my family members, but ultimately I'm very proud of um, being able to do everything for myself, really, and not having to be reliant on other people because I think it can be taken away from you very quickly. And then you quickly realise that, you know, a lot of the time you are on your own, you've got to do things, um, yeah, you've got to be your own best friend a lot of the times.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's really important to have that independence. Mm. Very, very important. And you're incredible. I really, just hearing your story today and for, honestly, I'm in awe of you. Um, Any wisdom you want to share with Bengali women, particularly creatives or those from lower socioeconomic ladder, Mm. you know, based on what you've been through in your life?
1: Mm. Well, thank you, Castlewell. That's really kind of you. Um, In terms of, yeah, what I, what's wisdom I'd share, uh, I think that overthinking is not very productive because, for example, <laughs> with this podcast, like the Brown Down Brown podcast, I was thinking about it for a long time and originally I was actually meant to co-host it with someone else. And then I kept on thinking about it and thinking about it. And um, a close friend of mine said to me, you just stop thinking about it and just do it because if you don't do it, you're never going to do it. So in terms of advice for anyone who's a creative, you know, who is a Bangladeshi, British Bangladeshi or a Bangladeshi woman who wants to, get out their sort of creative mindset and go with it and especially you know if you're from a financially disadvantaged background and you're worried about the financial repercussions of taking a risk if it's a creative risk if you don't want to you know have the security of full-time employment you know all those sort of things all those thoughts keep coming into your head if you're from a socioeconomically deprived background and that's something that I always thought about um but I would say just go with it. If you if you're worried about financial security and things like that, it's really good to have, um, you know, full time job. And I know that that's not going to be can you know very convenient for a lot of people. who might have other commitments. But for me, that's worked really well, and I can balance that alongside my side hustle with the podcasting and stuff like that. But I, I honestly think that it's so easy a lot of the time to navigate, um, you know, creative spaces, especially because of social media. A lot of the Um, packages that they offer um, you know is that low cost it's it's not particularly expensive and platforms like Patreon and Crowdfunder they really help with if you you know wanting to rack up some some funding Um, there are a lot of people within the social media spaces on Twitter and Instagram who are very happy to reach out uh, building that community for example you know when I reached out to you for the podcast I did it because I thought I've got nothing to lose you can only say no right Mm. Um, and I think it's good to build networks that way because a lot of the time they can be really helpful and sort of building your base if you want to be that creative person
0: excellent excellent guidance thank you so much for sharing I'm sure the listeners will get a lot from that especially anyone that's thinking about creating something this is a question I get a lot particularly from Bangladeshi women both in the UK and the states and they always ask me you know when should I create something should I create something what do you think of this there's never going to be a good time just do it now and and you're Um, never and you're never going to get a million followers followers tomorrow and it's not about that Uh, it's just about you know getting started if you feel passionate about something go for it and and Mm -hmm. see how it goes but I do think social media does have this It can be great, but it can also really ensue a lot of anxieties about where you should be, how you should be, how many likes you should have, how many followers you should have. And I think there's far too much people pleasing. So
1: yes, yes, you're right.
0: (laughs) Excellent, excellent advice. (laughs) Uh, I think people really take a lot from that. Thank you. Thank you and before we go to the gratefulness challenge um just a little bit of Bengali joy I'm always interested to know what people's favorite foods and snacks are so do you want to go first or shall I um I don't mind do you want me to go first yeah what's it what's your favorite snack
1: my favorite snack Bengali snack or just any
0: any Bengali snack
1: um i love um rush malai i don't know if that's very cliched but i just love it so much i can't get enough of it one one like... oh my gosh really i love, um, I love yeah i love jilapi as well and i also like this like this um like deep fried thing it's like with you know begony
0: like um oh yes i do know which one you... the aubergine one yeah the aubergine one it's like uh, a, the aubergine. fritter yeah yes yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, I haven't had that in years. No, me neither. Oh my gosh. Did you grow up on that then? Did your mummy start? Yeah, asleep? my mum used to make it a lot. Yeah, as a snack. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it might be an idea to start it up again. Yeah, maybe I should make it. That's yeah. a good idea. Because that's something I grew up with with my mum as well. And I don't think I've had it since she died. So, yeah, I don't think I have either, actually. Mm. Yeah. Interesting one. Yeah. um What's For me. Yours? Oh uh, well, for me it's definitely Handish, I think. You know, oh yes. Uh, yeah. It's a rice flour snack for our non-Bengali listeners. Um mm. it appears on Eid and Ramadan quite often. I think that's definitely my favorite, favorite Bengali snack. There's just so many though. You know, I realized oh, wow. how diverse our cuisine is and Sorry. just how many snacks and dishes we have that I just think, wow proud to be Bengali (laughs) Uh, I love my food though so I mean that's a really big part of it I think if you grow up in a Bangladeshi family food is the center of everything really you can't
1: can't visit a Bengali house and not come away feeling very
0: full exactly and you can't decline something either because (laughs) that no that's got to eat it you'll be shunned. You've got to eat it. Right. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today and for you just, you know, being vulnerable and sharing all of your experiences with me. I really do appreciate it. And I think my listeners will get a lot from it. Mm. Let's go to the gratefulness challenge before we close. I'm going to go first to just give you some time to think about it. Mm. Um, It's one thing that we're grateful for in the here and now, not to find a silver lining, because it's it's not about finding a silver lining. You can equally, you know, not feel grateful for something and mm. you can you can call that out. Um so for me, you know, ever since I started podcasting, I have to say, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of Bengalis. Mm. and I didn't have that access for me it was always during the holidays or when I was visiting cousins in East London or going to Brick Lane or picking up newspapers for my dad or going shopping with my dad to Brick Lane or with my mum as a child to the sari shops so like for me being around Bengali community I've not had a a lot of that unless it was family related or Mm. a, a trip somewhere where there are lots of Bengalis um, so since podcasting, it's been really lovely to connect with Bengalis all over the world, uh, particularly here in the UK, the States and Bangladesh. It's really afforded me this opportunity to just chat with people, whether I'm interviewing them or they're just calling me to have a chat. And I I never saw that coming. And I feel so grateful for that because it's been so pleasant. It's been so nice, you know, making new friendships and connections and just yeah. it's just been such a nice feeling because i didn't i didn't grow up with that and mm. um i've just really appreciated it and it's happening more and more and i just want to say that i'm so grateful and happy to see so many bengali creatives you know we need more bengali podcasters uh writers you know journalists photographers and and we are creative as a community i didn't realize it until i started podcasting how many Bengali creatives there are out there and yeah yeah, I'm just super grateful for the connection and I, I love having these conversations so that's what I'm grateful for in here and now I'll pass the mic to you
1: oh thank you so much I think that's a really fantastic thing to be grateful for especially because of the pandemic because we're confined to our small spaces and I think what that's led to for a lot of us including me and clearly yourself as well is that we've been able to look beyond what's within our immediate vicinity and make connections with people all around the world and because of social media we've been able to do that And similar to you like a lot of people I've met over the course of this pandemic has been online I've not actually met them in person and you're one of those people you know I've I've met you virtually and I'm sure one day we'll be able to meet physically, but mm. I've made so many amazing connections um, across the UK. Um, I think it'll be interesting for me to make some connections abroad as well, like you've done. I think that sounds be really interesting to get an insight, you know, the Bengali American way of life, for example, and how that differs from the British Bengali way of life. But I think for me, one thing that I'm particularly grateful for uh, and it's something I've always been very grateful for um, is good health, just because of the way in which I've seen, you know, some of my family members um deteriorate because of health issues like my mom you know dying at you know a pretty young age um has made me so grateful for being healthy um just having the ability to appreciate um good food um being able to exercise being able to breathe uh, having good lungs like I don't know if that sounds really benign but honestly I'm so grateful uh, and it's something I try and um sort of bring myself back to whenever i'm having a hard day or i'm thinking about something that you know in the grand scheme of things is pretty trivial you know i always remind myself that at least i have my health like at least i'm alive at least i'm healthy um there's nothing you know affecting me in that way um, a lot of a lot of the time I've seen you know illnesses within family members things like cancer and things that have really you know made me realize how lucky I am to be alive and, and to you know be fully formed as well to have all my limbs um, be fully functioning so that's something I'm incredibly grateful for and I try to remind myself of um, of that every day.
0: Well that was Tanya Hardcastle she joined me in the room to talk about her mother who died suddenly and unexpectedly tanya was 10 at the time tanya touched on some very key points about her experience where emotional support and the love and reassurance has helped her she's Someone now, as an adult, a woman, is thriving in her life. And when you go through something traumatic as a child, it's really important that you do get that love and that reassurance to help you navigate and process what is essentially a a traumatic experience. We also reflected on there towards the end of the episode about independence, not being taken advantage of, and what self-reliance should look like. I don't want to preach to people here about what that is and I think it's important to note that it isn't having a house, 2.4 children and a a picket fence and a car because that's not what it is. It will look different on everyone, it doesn't look the same on people independent. So if this is something that you're thinking about um, no matter where you are in your life uh, Um, you know it could be that it's traveling it could be a side hustle it could be going back to education whatever it is give it some thought because I think it is important to have something that no one can take away from you that you're proud of I'm gonna leave you with a final thought and so when it comes to the loss of a mother losing a mother is one of the deepest sorrows a heart can know but her goodness, her caring and her wisdom live on like a legacy of love that will always be with you. Well, let's wish Tanya a lot of love and continued success. Until next time, take good care of yourself. I am your host, Kosima Ali. Bye.